will please turn with me in our Bibles uh, this morning uh, to Mark chapter 16. And if you're looking in the church Bibles, you'll find this on page 853. Mark chapter 16, and beginning our reading at verse 9. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them, as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were that God's victory has been accomplished through the work of his son, who reverses the curse of sin, but also who reconciles sinners unto himself through the work of the Lord Jesus. But that announcement about a resurrection of someone who died on a cross, that announcement that Jesus is, has risen, is a message that many people can be skeptical about. Um, and it's, uh, in part, we could say, because we live in a, a time when many people put their confidence in what they can themselves test. Um, we live in an age where we're used to empirical testing, where you can do repeated tests in order to come to a confidence, to come to a knowledge about something. And there can be a, a tendency to think that all knowledge really comes down to what you can test empirically, uh, what can be observed, what can be uh, put through various trials and repeated in order to confirm knowledge. But that's really a very narrow way of thinking about knowledge itself. Uh, but uh, that mindset of skepticism uh, is common. And when people uh, can think about uh, the message of Christianity, it might seem like doubt or skepticism are distinct features of the modern world. Uh, we might even start to think that previous generations didn't wrestle uh, with unbelief or that they didn't wrestle with doubt, um, which can, we can, it can ultimately become a source of pride um, in the sense that we can look down on previous generations of the past as if they were not discerning thinkers themselves, or to think that they didn't apply critical thinking uh, themselves. And so there can be a, a certain sense of uh, arrogance or pride when we think that we are the first to ever wrestle with doubt or to wrestle with skepticism. But many people can think uh, that uh, the reason why we're skeptical of Christianity is because we have come to know so much through science. But this morning, as we're turning back in our uh, Bibles to Mark 16, we want to see that doubt, doubt and unbelief are not distinct uh, phenomena of the modern world. Unbelief is an attitude of the heart that we see manifested in the lives of people across the ages. And so we want to see that it is manifested even in the very men who would in time dedicate their lives to proclaiming that very message.
This morning we're looking in Mark chapter 16, and we want to see that uh, the, the disciples, we want to see their uh, disbelief uh, and their hardness of heart ultimately is to give way to faith in the Lord Jesus. Uh, and because Christ has risen, that we are to believe in him ourselves. One of the themes in Mark's gospel is the great prominence that he gives to faith. That fear is to, to give way to faith. And as we come here to this final chapter, you can see that that theme is really emerging uh, in a climactic fashion in Mark's gospel. That everything revolves around faith now. You see that from verses uh, really 9 uh, to the end, uh, the word faith is mentioned seven times. Uh, the response to these events is calling for faith itself. And so we want to look at uh, these verses, verses 9 through 14, in uh, two thoughts. We want to think about the failure to believe. And then uh, secondly, we want to think about finding uh, the faith to believe. So a, a lack of faith and then the presence of faith. First, uh, we want to think about the, the failure of the disciples to believe. Another uh, theme that is worth mentioning in Mark's gospel is uh, something that we see in terms of how Mark presents information, uh, a certain progression uh, that one can detect, um, a three-step progression where Mark builds a climax of trying to show something uh, in three steps. An example of that might be in the, the transfiguration. You remember when Jesus' appearance changed, uh, that his appearance uh, was made glorious to his disciples. Uh, there was something that was being shown to the disciples. But then more than that, secondly, you saw the, the prophets, uh, Moses and Elijah, emerged. They appeared and they were speaking with Jesus. But both the, the change in Jesus' appearance and the presence of these old covenant prophets was not enough for the disciples to understand what was going on. You remember that Peter, in a panic, said, let us build three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And it says Peter said that because he didn't know what to say, and he was terrified. In spite of seeing something about Jesus and his appearance changing, and in spite of seeing these old covenant prophets emerging, Peter was at a loss as to what it all meant. And ultimately, it required a voice from heaven uh, coming to them and saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And that cloud overshadowing them, and only Jesus was seen. There was a progression there of coming to grips with what was being revealed to them. It wasn't immediately recognized uh, what this means, but it had a, a, a progression. A similar three-step progression can be seen elsewhere. You remember when Peter denied his Lord, that he did so three times. But it doesn't just say that Peter denied Jesus. It tells us that the third time he denied Jesus, he did so with cursing and swearing. But it was only when he heard the rooster crow twice that he remembered what Jesus had said. It was only then that Peter came to a self-discovery of himself. 
Jesus had said that he would deny him three times. That wasn't something that Peter immediately grasped. It wasn't something that he immediately embraced. But it was something that by the the third point, by his third denial, when he heard the rooster crowing, then he remembered and discovered something about himself. This morning, as we're coming to Mark 16, you'll notice that there is, we could detect a similar three-step progression. There are three appearances that are being mentioned here. There is the appearance to Mary Magdalene, there is the appearance to the two, and then there is the appearance to the eleven. They're all very short, uh, but it seems to be intentional on Mark's part to be able to accent not so much the appearance, but to accent the reaction to that appearance. What is happening uh, in this uh, revelation of God through Jesus' appearing? And we want to look at each of them uh, this morning. But as mentioned, this whole section here is focused on the idea of faith. Uh, Seven times that word faith occurs in these concluding verses. In verse 11, it says they did not believe. In verse 13, it says they uh, did not believe him either. In verse 14, he reproved their unbelief. In verse 14, because they did not believe. In verse 16, the one who believes. Verse 17, those who believe. The focus here is really on faith. What does it look like to have faith? And we want to see how the disciples move from a failure to believe these things to ultimately believing these things themselves. And so we want to look at each of these appearances. Well, first, uh, we are told in verse 9 that uh, when he had rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. You remember that Mary uh, Magdalene and Mary, uh, the mother of James, and and Salome had gone to the, the tomb and they had found it empty. And the angel had told them that Jesus had risen. And so they, they fled the tomb. And in their panic, it tells us that initially they did not tell anyone, uh, uh, for they were afraid. That ultimately gave way, though. Uh, they ultimately did tell others what they had seen. And we were told that Jesus did appear to Mary Magdalene, as well as to the other women. When Mary Magdalene told uh, the disciples uh, that he was alive and had been seen by her, it says that they would not believe it. That's hardly a flattering description of the disciples. And it's not something that they would make up unless it was true. They wouldn't report this in their gospel unless it was actually what happened. Why? Because on the one hand, this is something that is supposed to be credible. Uh, when you think about the persuasiveness of the message of Christianity, Christianity hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. And if the early leaders, the early spokesmen of this movement, if the early followers of Jesus want the world to believe this message, it's digging themselves into a hole to say that we ourselves didn't believe it. Because it, it, it underscores where's the credibility Why is it that you should believe it now? And so if they want to persuade other people to believe in the resurrection, it it doesn't help them to say that we ourselves didn't believe it. But then secondly, it doesn't help them uh, to advance this message unless it's true, because not only would it undermine the persuasiveness of it, but it undermines their own prominence. 
if they want people to respect them and to listen to their message and to believe they are credible, then they should be examples of faith themselves. They should be the models of what it means to be people who believe the message. And so to tell others that they themselves did not believe the message that Jesus rose from the dead would undermine their own, their own integrity, their own sense of uh, uh, prominence uh, in the respect of others. They would not be held in high repute uh, if they were shown to have this weakness themselves. And so just as we come to read it and says that they did not believe it, there's that, that note of historicity to this. The disciples themselves did not immediately grasp these things themselves. And on top of that, they knew Mary Magdalene. If you turn elsewhere, you see that when Jesus traveled from village to village proclaiming the kingdom of God, it tells us that he was accompanied not only by the, uh, the disciples, the twelve, but also by the women, including Mary Magdalene. They knew her. And yet, despite their familiarity with Mary Magdalene, they still weren't prepared to receive her testimony. They would not believe what she told them. And so they remained in their state of grief. No doubt they were grieving uh, the loss uh, of Jesus, the death of Jesus. And no doubt that grief was mixed with their own remorse over fleeing from him. But it closed off any consideration that Jesus was alive. So in this first appearance to Mary Magdalene, it tells us that the disciples did not believe it. But there's a second appearance that is mentioned in verses 12 and 13. Uh, this is most likely referring to the same event that we read there in Luke's gospel about the two on the road to Emmaus, uh, Cleopas and uh, Cleopas's companion. But Jesus appeared to them in another form. But you notice here that Mark is not so much interested in giving us the account of what happened. But again, he's focusing in on the reaction of the disciples. How did they react to these things when it was told to them? And again, it tells us that they went back and they told the rest, but they did not believe them. Even now, with multiple testimonies being added together, they did not believe. Now stop and think about that. From the vantage point of an Israelite, that's a really noteworthy thing. Because in the law of God, multiple testimonies carry great weight. For instance, if you're going to charge someone, the testimony of one person is insufficient to carry that charge. But the testimony of two people is sufficient. Testimonies are built on the evidence of and the, the expectation of truth being uh, proclaimed. And as we turn to the law of God, it says in Deuteronomy 19, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Deuteronomy 17 says, On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. Do you hear the gravity behind that? A capital crime that would be punishable by death was sustained on the account of two testimonies, two witnesses 
that say they saw it happen. That person would be stoned and the stoning would take place by those two people that saw it. That, that the law was enacted on the, on the basis of multiple testimonies. And now here are the disciples. Mary Magdalene has come and told them that Jesus has risen, that he has appeared to her. They don't believe it. And now here two others, Cleopas and his companion, come and tell them an independent testimony, but confirming the same reality. And the disciples again do not believe it. The testimonies here uh, are affirming uh, the, the resurrection of Jesus. The disciples, their failure to believe, it's ultimately not with respect to the absence or the presence of evidence. They had not only the predictions of Jesus, but they also had multiple independent testimonies that supported the claim. And even when we think about our own context today, it is not a lack of evidence or the amount of evidence that is really the issue. We don't just have the evidence or the testimony of one or two witnesses. We have the testimony of all the prophets that anticipate the work of God and the purposes of God. We have the testimony of the apostles who have written down what happened. We have the testimony of what happens after the empty tomb in the expansion and the growth of the church. We have the testimony of the Holy Spirit that has been working in the lives of people, converting the nations, that shows us this is the work of God. It's not a matter of lack of evidence. The evidence is not the issue because some are persuaded by that evidence. The issue is rather one of the will. Will we trust in God's word and act in a response to it? And so as we look at these uh, events that transpired after the uh, resurrection, the appearance to Mary Magdalene, the appearance to the 12, uh, to the 11, we're seeing how unbelief is not just a modern phenomenon. It wasn't any easier for uh, people back then to believe in the resurrection than it is for us today. In some ways, it was harder because they witnessed these events take place. Mary Magdalene saw Jesus being crucified. She saw Jesus being entombed. She saw Jesus raised. That would be a lot harder to process than even for us 2,000 years later. And so here uh, we're seeing uh, the, the failure of the belief of the disciples. Uh, it is not just a, a, a modern phenomenon that is struggled with, but rather it is uh, a human nature problem. But not only uh, do we see uh, the absence or the lack of their faith, but we're also told uh, of how that change comes about. In verse 14, it says, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. It's that third appearance that Mark says resolution comes. It's not ultimately through Mary Magdalene or even through Cleopas that they are going to be convinced. It's when Jesus himself appears to them. And so uh, when Jesus comes, he rebukes them for their hardness of heart and their unbelief. 
Hardness of heart is a, a concept that Mark has mentioned many times throughout this gospel. You remember that Jesus spoke of the disciples having a hardness of heart uh, after he fed the 5,000. Uh, Jesus then walked on the water. And when the disciples saw him, they were terrified. And again, Jesus says to them, do you not believe? Do you still have a hardness of heart? In other words, Jesus was saying, you don't understand. You didn't understand the meaning of the feeding of the 5,000 and what that says about me. And so you can't understand what it means when I'm walking on the water. When, when Jesus uh, spoke to them about the leaven of the Pharisees, he warned them about the, the teachings of the Pharisees. But the disciples thought he was talking about bread. And again, Jesus, he, he rebukes them in the sense that he says, do you still not understand? Do you still have a hardness of heart? Jesus says, do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? So when Jesus confronted the disciples about their unbelief, he didn't see their unbelief as something neutral. The fact that they didn't understand was something they were being corrected about. When Jesus came to them, he didn't say, and now you have reason to believe. Now you have enough evidence to believe. Contrary to the way that many times skeptics will talk. One famous atheist from the 20th century said that if he appears before God after he dies, he'll say simply not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. It's an attitude of condescension that he thinks that God must meet his standards. But when Jesus here appears to the disciples, he doesn't say, and now you have the evidence you need. Instead, he says, you should have believed when you were told through the others. In other words, they were accountable for what had been revealed to them. Skepticism is not a neutral position. It's a moral posture. It's saying something about God first and foremost. It's saying that God is not trustworthy, that I cannot embrace what God has said, and that I will not respond in faith. Failure to believe, then, is a stance of the heart, and the natural heart is one of resisting uh, God and trusting in him. But we are responsible for what we do with God's word and to, uh, to make an evaluation of God being trustworthy. So how is it that this unbelief, this disbelief is overcome? Well, in the case of the disciples, it's overcome when Jesus comes to them, when Jesus appears to them and makes the truth known to them. And ultimately, their, their disbelief does give way. Because as it says at the end, in verse 20, they went out and they preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The disciples did move. They moved from disbelief to belief. But how? It was when Christ appeared to them. When Christ made these things known to them. But just as Jesus appeared to the disciples, so Jesus makes himself known through the Spirit as the message of the gospel is preached. That's what Jesus said would happen. The Spirit will bear witness of me. And when he does, he will change the natures, the hearts of sinners so that they believe.
That's what Peter would say when he writes to the early church living in Turkey. He would tell them that though you have not seen him, you love him. They did not see the appearance of Jesus. And yet they believed. You don't need to see a sign. You don't need to see a a miracle. You don't need to see a resurrection to believe in Jesus. How did the people in Turkey come to believe in the resurrection of Jesus? You go back and you read 1 Peter. And Peter begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has shown his great mercy towards us, causing us to be born again to a living hope. How is it that they came to faith in Turkey? It's because the Spirit caused them to be born again. How did the Spirit cause them to be born again? When the message of God's word hit home. When they heard the message and the Spirit of God enabled them to receive it, to embrace it by faith and to delight in it. When the stubborn heart was changed with a new heart and they were able to find hope in the work of God's grace, they were giving a new heart. So if we're going to meet with the risen Christ, it is through the testimony of his word. It's by the work of the spirit that we come to know of God's grace. Again, we've said one of the themes in Mark's gospel is this idea of faith, of fear giving way to faith. How does that happen? It's as the Spirit impresses the truth on our lives. You go back to one of the the central miracles in Mark's gospel is when the father comes to Jesus with his boy who's afflicted by a demon. And he asks Jesus to do something if he can. And Jesus says, all things are possible for the one who believes. Which ultimately causes the father to cry out. I believe, help my unbelief. That's something that even believers can resonate with. To say, I believe, and yet there's also this wrestling, a struggle of unbelief that I see in me as well. But where we see that unbelief, how, do we, how does that unbelief give way to faith? How does faith grow where there is such a prominence of unbelief? It's when the word is being impressed upon us. And that's why we need to be so centered on the word of God. That's why we need to be regular in the word of God. That's why we need to be regular uh, in gathering together as a church. To hear God's word. Because unbelief seeps in. That's why we need to be meditating on God's word day and night. Because unbelief can become a stranglehold on us. The disciples here were followers, and yet disbelief had taken hold on them. And they needed to be impressed in encountering the living and risen Christ if they were going to respond. And so it is with us as well. God speaks to us through his word. Christ appears to us through his word. As the spirit takes that word and implants it into our lives causing us to embrace it. But when it is embraced, that faith will then be displayed. Again, these disciples who would not embrace a message of good news, they would not entertain the thought that Jesus was alive. They could not receive it. 
come to delight in it. And then it is displayed in the way that they go out to transform the world. They go out preaching everywhere that Jesus has risen. Because it's not about their own prominence. People can think lowly of them. That's not why they're doing it. And the persuasiveness is is that they see that the work of the Spirit is at work. That the risen Christ is working through them. And that people will turn. And so while it is humbling for themselves to be able to say, we didn't believe it either. They ultimately come to embrace what God has done in Christ. Because it's true. Skepticism, unbelief, is not a modern challenge. It's a challenge of the human heart that lives suspicious of God. It's only by the work of the Spirit that that is going to be overcome. But the Spirit uses the Word to do that work. The message of Jesus Christ fits. The testimony, the witnesses of the Old Testament prophets, the apostles, the work of God down through time, these things all fit so that we can see that this is true. And that faith is ultimately where we are to be led to. So that we don't remain simply passive with respect to the gospel. That we don't live simply uh, undecided. Mark wrote this gospel so that we would move forward in faith. That's how the disciples ultimately moved forward. Are we moving forward in that way? And if you're a professing Christian this morning, ask yourself, where do you display that faith? The disciples displayed it in the way that they went out into the world as they honored Christ and the commandment that was given to them. If you name the name of Jesus, does that shape the way that you're living? A risen hope that comes from a risen Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about the disciples and their response uh, to the testimony of the appearances of Jesus, Lord, we pray that we would see uh, their own weakness, to see their own cloudiness. But we pray, Lord, as well, that we would see our own need uh, to respond to your testimony. Lord, we ask that by your Spirit, we would not only understand what the Bible says, but that we would be able to see that it is true. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to delight in your works and to treasure them even as we make them known to others. Go before us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.